Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care, along with Sarah Moore. In this month's issue, we are pleased to publish the papers from the journal conference, Adult Mechanical Ventilation and Acute Care, Issues and Controversies. These should be of interest to anyone who cares for patients receiving mechanical ventilation. We are grateful to Rich Calais and Neil McIntyre for their help in organizing this conference and bringing together a world-class faculty. We will present the podcast a bit differently this month. Sarah will first read the abstracts from the conference papers, after which I will return with some overall reflections about the conference. Our first paper is Ventilator-Induced Lung Injury, Minimizing Its Impact in Patients with or at Risk for ARDS by Beal and colleagues. Ventilator-induced lung injury results from injury to the blood gas barrier caused by mechanical ventilation. The determinants of ventilator-induced lung injury are more complex than originally thought and include the nature, duration, and intensity of the exposure as well as the pattern of initial insult to the lung. Lung protective mechanical ventilation founded on these basic principles resulted in improved hospital and long-term mortality. The purpose of this review is to provide a comprehensive assessment of the pathogenesis of ventilator-induced lung injury and its determinants. We also discuss the best preventive approach in patients with or at risk for ARDS and critically appraise the most recent evidence, expert opinion, and implementation of the acquired knowledge to the bedside. Next is the paper by Marini, Ventilator-Associated Problems Related to Obstructive Lung Disease. Relatively little attention has been directed towards damage inflicted upon the airway network that connects the alveoli or towards the problems caused by invasive ventilation for patients with severe airflow obstruction. Mechanical ventilation with positive pressure can cause non-edematous barotrauma, inflict airway injury, and promote lung remodeling. Interactions between patient and ventilator, largely mediated through dynamic hyperinflation, include functional consequences for hemodynamics, respiratory muscle function, breathing workload, and patient-ventilator synchrony. Awareness of such associations not only helps avoid complications during and after the critical phase of obstructive illness, but also opens a window into improved patient comfort and safety. The purpose of this discussion is to survey the range of structural damages and functional impairments that can occur in an obstructive context. Non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure is by Hess. NIV for acute respiratory failure has gained much academic and clinical interest. Despite this, it is underutilized. The evidence strongly supports its use in patients presenting with an exacerbation of COPD and in patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. As reviewed in this paper, there is now evidence supporting or not supporting the use of NIV in various other presentations of acute respiratory failure. It is important not only to know when to initiate NIV, but also when this therapy is failing. Whether NIV in acute respiratory failure can be managed appropriately outside the ICU setting is controversial. 
Although a variety of interfaces are available, the oronasal mask is the best initial interface in terms of leak prevention and patient comfort. Some critical care ventilators have NIV modes that compensate well for leaks, but as a group, the ventilators designed specifically for NIV have better leak compensation. NIV should be part of the armamentarium of all clinicians caring for patients with acute respiratory failure. Our next paper, Asynchrony and Dyspnea, is by Branson and colleagues. Patient ventilator synchrony and patient comfort are assumed to go hand in hand, yet few studies provide support for this common sense idea. In reality, synchrony between the patient and ventilator is complex and can be affected by the ventilator settings, type of ventilator, patient ventilator interface, and sedation. Inspections of airway pressure and flow waveforms are reliable methods for detecting asynchrony, and automated detection seems accurate. A number of types of asynchronies have been defined. There is a clear association between asynchrony, ventilator-induced diaphragmatic dysfunction, and duration of mechanical ventilation. Whether these are cause and effect or simply associated remains to be determined. Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, Evolving Definitions and Preventive Strategies is by Mieto et al. Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, or VAP, is one of the most frequent hospital-acquired infections occurring in intubated patients. Because VAP is associated with higher mortality, morbidity, and costs, there is a need to solicit further research for effective preventive measures. VAP has been proposed as an indicator of quality of care. Clinical diagnosis has been criticized to have poor accuracy and reliability. Thus, the CDC has introduced a new definition based upon objective and recordable data. Institutions are nowadays reporting a VAP zero rate in surveillance programs, raising discrepancy with clinical data. This reduction has been highlighted in epidemiological studies, but it can only be attributed to a difference in patient selection since no additional intervention has been taken to modify pathogenic mechanisms in these studies. The principal determinant of VAP development is the presence of an endotracheal tube, or ETT. Contaminated oropharyngeal secretions pool over the ETT cuff and subsequently leak down to the lungs through a hydrostatic gradient. Impairment of mucociliary motility and cough reflex cannot counterbalance with a proper clearance of secretions. Lastly, biofilms develop on the inner ETT surface and act as a reservoir from microorganism inoculum to the lungs. New preventive strategies are focused on improvement of secretion drainage and prevention of bacterial colonization. Gravity's influence on mucus flow and body positioning can facilitate the clearance of distal airways with decreased colonization of the respiratory tract. A different approach proposes ETT modifications to limit the leakage of oropharyngeal secretions. Subglottic secretion drainage and cuff innovations have been addressed to reduce VAP incidence. Moreover, coated ETTs have been shown to prevent biofilm formation, although there is evidence that ETT clearance devices, such as the mucus shaver, are required to preserve the antimicrobial properties over time. 
Here, after reviewing the most noteworthy issues in VAP definition and pathophysiology, we will present the more interesting proposals for VAP prevention. Enter and intrahospital transport of the critically ill is by Blakeman and Branson. Intra- and interhospital transport is common due to the need for advanced diagnostics and procedures and to provide access to specialized care. Risks are inherent during transport, so the anticipated benefits of transport must be weighed against the possible negative outcome during the transport. Adverse events are common both in and out of hospital transports, with the most common being equipment malfunctions. During interhospital transport, increased transfer time is associated with worse patient outcomes. The use of specialized teams with transport of children has been shown to decrease adverse events. Intrahospital transports often involve critically ill patients, which increases the likelihood of adverse events. Radiographic diagnostics are the most common in-hospital transport destination, and the results often change the course of care. It is recommended that portable ventilators be used for transport because studies show that the use of a manual resuscitator alters blood gas values due to inconsistent ventilation. The performance of new generation transport ventilators has improved greatly and now allow for seamless transition from ICU ventilators. Diligent planning for and monitoring during transport may decrease adverse events and reduce risk. Next is the paper, Sedation and Paralysis, by Piri Yipatsum and colleagues. Sedation is used almost universally in the care of critically ill patients, especially in those who require mechanical ventilatory support or other life-saving invasive procedures. This review will focus on sedation strategies for critically ill patients and review the pharmacology of commonly used sedative agents. The role of neuromuscular blocking agents in the ICU will be examined. Finally, a strategy for rational use of these sedative and neuromuscular blocking agents in critically ill patients will be proposed. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for adult respiratory failure is by Turner and Scheifetz. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation is a form of cardiopulmonary bypass that is a mainstay of therapy in neonatal and pediatric patients with life-threatening respiratory and or cardiac failure. Historically, the use of ECMO in adults has been limited, but recent reports and technological advances have increased utilization and interest in this technology in adult patients with severe respiratory failure. As ECMO is considered in this critically ill population, patient selection, indications, contraindications, comorbidities, and pre-ECMO support are all important considerations. Once the decision is made to cannulate a patient for ECMO, meticulous multi-organ system management is required, with a priority being placed on lung rest and minimization of ventilator-induced lung injury. Close monitoring is also necessary for complications, some of which are related to ECMO and others secondary to the patient's underlying degree of illness. Despite the risks, report demonstrates survival greater than 70% in some circumstances for patients requiring ECMO for refractory respiratory failure. 
As the utilization of ECMO in adult patients with respiratory failure continues to expand, ongoing discussion and investigation are needed to determine whether ECMO should remain a rescue therapy or if earlier ECMO may be beneficial as a lung protective strategy. Our next paper is by Calais, Adjunct Therapies During Mechanical Ventilation, Airway Clearance Techniques, Therapeutic Aerosols, and Gases. Mechanically ventilated patients in respiratory failure often require adjunct therapies to address special needs such as inhaled drug delivery to alleviate airway obstruction, treat pulmonary infection, or stabilize gas exchange, or therapies that enhance pulmonary hygiene. These therapies generally are supportive in nature rather than curative. Currently, most lack high-level evidence supporting their routine use. This overview describes the rationale and examines the evidence supporting adjunctive therapies during mechanical ventilation. Both mechanistic and clinical research suggests that intrapulmonary percussive ventilation may enhance pulmonary secretion mobilization and might reverse atelectasis. However, its impact on outcomes such as ICU stay is uncertain. The most crucial issue is whether aerosolized antibiotics should be used to treat ventilator-associated pneumonia, particularly when caused by multidrug-resistant pathogens. There is encouraging evidence from several studies supporting its use, at least in individual cases of pneumonia non-responsive to systemic antibiotic therapy. Inhaled pulmonary vasodilators provide at least short-term improvement in oxygenation and may be useful in stabilizing pulmonary gas exchange in complex management situations. Small, uncontrolled studies suggest aerosolized heparin with N-acetylcysteine might break down pulmonary casts and relieve airway obstruction in patients with severe inhalation injury. Similar low-level evidence suggests that Heliox is effective in reducing airway pressure and improving ventilation in various forms of lower airway obstruction. These therapies generally are supportive and may facilitate patient management. However, because they haven't been shown to improve patient outcomes, it behooves clinicians to use these therapies parsimoniously and monitor their effectiveness carefully. Next is the paper, The Ventilator Discontinuation Process, an Expanding Evidence Base, by McIntyre. The ventilation discontinuation process is an essential component of overall ventilator management. Undue delay leads to excess stay, iatrogenic lung injury, unnecessary sedation, and even higher mortality. On the other hand, premature withdrawal can lead to muscle fatigue, dangerous gas exchange impairment, loss of airway protection, and also higher mortality. Continued ventilator dependence can be a result of persistent illness or can be a result of poor management. It is obviously important for the clinician to be able to assess both these issues. An evidence-based task force has recommended regular assessments focusing on the causes of ventilator dependence, regular assessments for evidence of disease stability or reversal, use of regular spontaneous breathing trials, SBTs, as the primary assessment tool for ventilator discontinuation potential, 
use of separate assessments to evaluate the need for an artificial airway in patients tolerating the SBT, and the use of comfortable interactive ventilator modes that do not need to be weaned in between regular SBTs. More recent developments have focused on the importance of linking sedation reduction protocols to ventilator discontinuation protocols. Patients with repeated SBT failures are often considered to require prolonged mechanical ventilation. These patients often receive tracheostomies and are probably better managed with more gradual reductions in support and gradually lengthening spontaneous breathing periods. Prolonged mechanical ventilation patients have a high one-year mortality and many may ultimately require lifelong support. This evidence base is growing, but the earlier guidelines are standing the test of time. Indeed, practice patterns are evolving in accordance with them. Nevertheless, there is still room for improvement and further clinical studies, especially in patients requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation. Our final paper is Mechanical Ventilation Competencies of the Respiratory Therapist in 2015 and Beyond by Kasmeric. The evolution of critical care and mechanical ventilation has been dramatic and rapid over the last 10 years and can be expected to continue at this pace into the future. As a result, the competencies of the respiratory therapist regarding mechanical ventilation in 2015 and beyond are expected to also markedly increase. Respiratory therapists are expected to be the experts on the mechanical ventilator and all aspects of the application of mechanical ventilation. They will be considered consultants on all aspects of ventilatory support. This requires an expanded education in a number of areas. To achieve these levels of competency, as recommended by the third 2015 and Beyond Conference, the entry-level education of the respiratory therapist of the future must be at the baccalaureate level. One of the buzzwords receiving a lot of attention these days is patient safety. As I read the papers from this journal conference, it occurs to me that there is a lot of information here about patient safety as it relates to mechanical ventilation. Lung protective ventilation is a standard of care. It is well established that limiting tidal volume and alveolar distending pressure saves lives. This is true not only for patients with ARDS, but for all mechanically ventilated patients. One important way that we improve safety for our mechanically ventilated patients is to avoid injurious ventilatory patterns. In patients with obstructive lung disease requiring mechanical ventilation, we promote patient safety by avoiding auto-peep, air trapping, and dynamic hyperinflation. So we should monitor not only end inspiratory alveolar pressure, but also end expiratory alveolar pressure. There is increasing evidence supporting the use of non-invasive ventilation in properly selected patients. In patients presenting with COPD exacerbation or acute CHF, NIV is first-line therapy. There continues to be debate about the role of sedation and paralysis. On one hand, early sedation and paralysis limited to 48 hours may improve survival with severe ARDS. On the other hand, prolonged sedation and paralysis may lead to myopathies, including respiratory muscle weakness. 
More than 10 years ago, evidence-based clinical practice guidelines were published related to the ventilator discontinuation process. Those guidelines recommended that, once there was some resolution of the underlying disease process, a spontaneous breathing trial should be performed to assess ventilator discontinuation potential. Best evidence still supports this approach. As discussed during this conference, the CDC recently rolled out a surveillance program that targets ventilator-associated events rather than the previous system that reported ventilator-associated pneumonia. According to this system, a ventilator-associated condition occurs when there is an increase in FiO2 or PEEP after a period of stability on the ventilator. This could be caused by ventilator-associated pneumonia, but might also be due to other causes of worsening condition on the ventilator. By definition, a ventilator-associated condition occurs only in intubated patients. Therefore, avoidance of intubation through use of non-invasive ventilation or earlier identification that extubation is possible should reduce the risk of a ventilator-associated condition. Likewise, use of lung protective ventilation strategies should reduce the risk of a ventilator-associated condition. I hope that you will find a wealth of pertinent clinical information as you read the journal this month. Adherence to the evidence-based approaches discussed here should improve the safety of our mechanically ventilated patients. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.